0: Well, we are today going to be starting week number one of a brand new series called Wars and Walls. And what we're doing is we're going to be looking through for the next several weeks, we're going to be uh, working our way through the biblical story of Nehemiah together. And when I first started uh, thinking about this and our teaching team decided, yeah, this is what we think God's leading us to talk about uh, during this season, um, this, this whole book of Nehemiah, I got really excited because Nehemiah is all about action, It's like a book full of action. It's like an action movie. It's about rebuilding a wall, rebuilding a city, fighting off enemies, you know, that are trying to stop that from happening. It's it's just a great book full of action. And so I found out I was going to be the one who got to teach week number one. We're going to look at chapter one of Nehemiah today. That's what the sermon's about. And I got really excited. And then I I began to read through Nehemiah chapter one again, familiarizing myself with the story. And I had forgotten there is absolutely no action in Nehemiah chapter one. (laughs) Seriously, it's like... The first hour of the Avengers Endgame movie, like nothing happens. Everybody's just sad. And, oh, sorry if that was like a spoiler. Uh, oops, I'm sorry. Oh, no. My bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it, it literally, it's like there's no action. And I thought, are you kidding me? And so then I was kind of bummed out. Like, oh, no, I'm going to have to do the sermon on the one that, where there's nothing happening. And then as I began to study it afresh again, and I began to just sort of dig into what God had for us today, I realized, oh, no, actually, this is like, the, this is the thing. Nehemiah chapter 1, if, if you understand what happens in Nehemiah chapter 1, you understand the entire book of Nehemiah. Because what happens in chapter 1 actually launches all the action of the book. And unless you really grasp what happens in chapter 1, you're not going to be emotionally invested in what comes next for the next few weeks. And so I'm actually really excited to talk about Nehemiah 1 and what it has uh, to say for us today. So you ready? Awesome. It happened like this. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1 In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. So you, you can kind of see what I mean. I mean, right off the bat, it's, the first paragraph is just like all this information, all this background and, and information. So the first question we have to ask as we enter in this morning is the question, where are we in the story? And we've talked about this before. The Bible unfolds as a narrative. It unfolds like a story, has a beginning, a middle, and end. And so the question is, where are we in the big story of the Bible? Now, Nehemiah is what's known as a post-exilic narrative which is a big fancy way of saying, it's a story that happens after the exile. So what's the exile? The exile is the event that happened in 586 BC. The Babylonian empire, which they were the global military superpower at the time, they come in and they sack Jerusalem and they carry off God's people, the Israelites, all the way to the east, all the way to Babylon as captives. And in that moment in 586, Israel lost the temple, they lost the city of Jerusalem, and they lost their land, their their identity as a people. And so they're carried off into exile. So Nehemiah is a book that happens uh, actually during the reign of the Persian king Artaxerxes. So what happened is after a period of time, years passed, Persia was the next empire that came in and they took over and they conquered the Babylonians. And so they kind of inherited the empire. And so uh, the Israelites are still captives under the Persian empire. And uh, I wonder, how many of you were here several weeks ago when we looked at the biblical story of Esther? Do you remember when we went through Esther? Okay, several of you were here. So Esther comes after Nehemiah in the Bible, but the story itself actually happened chronologically before Nehemiah. So Esther was the queen, the wife of King Xerxes. King Xerxes was the father of King Artaxerxes from the story of Nehemiah. So if you're following that logic, basically Esther, Queen Esther, was the stepmother of King Artaxerxes. If that makes any sense. And so Nehemiah takes place during the reign of King Artaxerxes. And what happened is when the Persian kings took over for Babylon, they began to allow some supervised return and rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem for the Israelites. Key word there is supervised. They weren't free, they weren't independent. They were allowed still as captives, though, to return back to Jerusalem, maybe because of Esther and some of what she did. They were allowed more and more and more to return and begin to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah is asking about that. Here in chapter 1, that's what's happening. Some of his brothers have been in in Jerusalem. They've been rebuilding the city. They come back to Persia, to the citadel of Susa, where Nehemiah lives, in in the capital city of the Persian Empire. And Nehemiah's like, hey, bros, how's it going? How's the rebuilding effort going? Here's their answer. They said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. So when Nehemiah gets this news about the walls being torn down in the city of Jerusalem, it literally just wrecks him. The news just destroys him, he sits down and weeps, he puts his life on hold, and for days he just mourns and fasts, which, which is weird, right? I mean, when you read it, you're like, well, why in the world did that news hit him so hard? So the question we have to ask is, why are walls so important? Why would news that this wall had been torn down and destroyed, why would that be so devastating to Nehemiah? What you have to understand is that in the ancient world, walls were the primary form of defense for a city. And so in order for people to feel safe, in order for them to build a life and actually be able to to thrive in a city, there had to be a city wall that went around and protected that city. So at this point in time, you know, the temple is being rebuilt. The Israelites are returning, they're rebuilding the temple, but the temple is vulnerable to attack because there's no wall that's been rebuilt. Any enemy at any point can come in and just tear it right back down again. Families who had moved from the Persian Empire back to Jerusalem to begin to rebuild and be there as families, they were vulnerable. Can you imagine? Not even knowing if your kids all the time worrying about, are my kids safe? Are they going to get destroyed in some violent attack that comes in at any moment from the city? Also, the economy was vulnerable. Commerce would not have happened because people would not have felt safe to come into the city to trade and bring goods in. And so nobody could have built a life. The city couldn't have thrived and moved forward until there was a wall that had been built. So it seems like a no-brainer, right? You read this, you're like, well, of course, they should go build a city wall. But it's not that easy. It's a lot more complicated than that. Because a wall being built at this time would have sent all kinds of other signals, to the Persians, to King Artaxerxes, if the Israelites began to rebuild a wall, it would have sent a signal that, oh, are they, are they trying to start a revolution? They must want their independence. They're trying to build a wall so they can separate themselves. They're going to try to become their own people again. For the surrounding nations around the city of Jerusalem, it would have sent signals of distrust and animosity. In fact, that's exactly what happens. As we read the story of Nehemiah, you're going to see that. As they begin to build the wall, it sends these signals and the enemies start to be formed around this idea that they're building a wall. And even for the people inside, the Israelites inside the wall, it would have sent all these signals about there's us and there's them and and we've got to protect ourselves and keep ourselves safe. They're the enemy. And so a wall is a very, very controversial thing. Now, I understand. I know it's hard for you to imagine living in a country where a border wall could be a source of great controversy. I realize you read this story like we just have nothing in common. We can't even like put ourselves in their position, these poor, unevolved barbarians. But if you could, can you just try, please, for the sake of the sermon, could you just try imagining how a border wall might cause a bunch of controversy and all these different perspectives and opinions? This is a complicated thing. And so uh, as we look at this ancient story, maybe we're tempted to kind of go, what does this ancient story about an ancient wall and an ancient city and this ancient empire have to do with me? What has it got to do with us? And so the question I think that it speaks to and that we begin to find resonance with is when we look at our lives, what happens when our walls get torn down? Because all of us have experienced moments where we feel like suddenly our security has been taken away from us. What happens when our walls get torn down? What do you do when you find yourself in a time of change that you didn't give permission for? And things are changing, and it's not within your control, and you didn't say yes to it, but here you are anyway. What do you do? Do you lash out? Do you send the angry email? Do you give up? Do you just sink into this pit of depression and just give up that there's no hope for the future? Uh, Do you escape into some sort of sin or, or addiction? How do you handle it when you find yourself in a time of change that you did not sign up for? That's what we're talking about. That's what, the, that's what the first chapter of Nehemiah invites us to ask uh, of ourselves. There are all kinds of destructive responses that we can have whenever we find ourselves in a, in a time where our walls are being torn down. And those destructive responses, all they do is they take our pain deeper, and they escalate conflict with other people and escalate the problem so much to the point where it just makes it harder and harder and harder to ever even resolve it. And those are destructive responses. But what I wanna do in the next few minutes is I wanna look at the way Nehemiah responds to this moment, not just in his life, but in the nation of Israel. And I think the way he responds gives us an incredible roadmap for how we should respond in a godly way when we find ourselves in a time where our walls are being torn down, when things are changing and we didn't say yes to it, but we find ourselves in the midst of it. How do you respond? How do you respond in a godly way That allows God to bless you and work through that and that. That's what we're going to look at here in Nehemiah. So I just want to look at these. There are four things that he does. The first thing he does is he grieves. Verse 4, as soon as he gets this news, we just read it a moment ago. The first thing Nehemiah does is he grieves. He literally says, I sat down and I wept. Uh, For days, in fact, I mourn. It's it's, um, a reference to the Jewish concept of sitting Shiva. He literally just sits down and begins to mourn and to weep. He puts his entire life on hold, and it's obvious to everyone, he's just absolutely wrecked and destroyed by this information. He mourns and he fasts for days. This is weird, isn't it? I mean, when you read that, it's like, are you kidding me? Like, nobody would give you that advice. Like, if you're experiencing a time of change, here's what you need to do. Wallow in it. Just, you know, put everything on hold, do nothing, just fall on the ground and cry for days. Nobody would give you that advice in our culture. I think a lot of the reason for that is because we don't really know how to grieve things well in our world. In our culture, we we don't have a concept of what does it mean to actually grieve things well. What we do is whenever we're going through a tough time, we we post a really great picture of us smiling big on Instagram. And then, you know, we pop a few more pills and we rock a really good workout at the gym and we win. That's what we do, right? When we're in a time of suffering. That's not what Nehemiah does. He literally says, I got to step back from everything right now, put everything on hold, and he just grieves, weeps, and mourns. But I want you to notice something with this. He's not just weeping and mourning for himself. He's not throwing a pity party for himself. This is a specific kind of grief. This isn't wallowing in self-pity. What I want you to notice is that for, for Nehemiah, the news about the wall isn't affecting him personally. He's not grieving for himself. Nehemiah is safe in the capital city of Susa in the center of the greatest military superpower empire of that time. He's safe. He's good. He had a great job. We learn in, later here in chapter 1, you're going to see he's, he's the cupbearer to the king. It was like a, a high security position in close um, regard to the king. He had, a, he had great job security, a great job, a great future. His life was good. I mean, it's a bummer, right? I mean, it's a bummer, these, these people in Jerusalem, that they have no wall and that things are not going well. That's, that's really sad, but that didn't affect him personally. Why is he weeping and crying and falling apart for days and days? What's happening here is he's carrying a burden for his fellow people, for his, for his brothers and sisters. That's what's happening. A few weeks ago was Mother's Day, and um, my wife and I have four boys, and so I've learned over the years that my job on Mother's Day is to advocate for my wife that's my job. I'm not, she's not my mother, but my job is to basically say to my boys, you need to have a plan for your mother. And so I will say, you, ha- you need to have a plan to, of how to honor your mother on Mother's Day, or I will have a plan for you after that. That's what I say to them. And so they're, okay. And so we had, in, in like the days leading up to Mother's Day, one, uh, one day we were sitting around the kitchen table. Uh, my wife was there, Carrie, and, and my boys, and we're all having a discussion. And, and my boys are saying, what do you want for Mother's Day? like what would be a great, you know, like what would be like the perfect Mother's Day experience for you? What would that look like? And she answers, she says, uh, well, here's what I'd love to do on Mother's Day. She said, after church, I would love to drive to this foster care group home for kids in the foster system that's about half an hour, 40 minutes away. And I would like to go and I would like to visit this 10-year-old boy who's in this foster care group home. She happened to know him from her job and, and he had been placed in this group home. She said, I want to go and I want to spend some time and just visit him. And instantly, we were all like, what? Are you kidding me? That's, te- that's a terrible idea for Mother's Day. Like, we start trying to talk her out of it, right? I mean, we're, we're like, no, you deserve to let us spoil you. You deserve to have, like, a day for yourself. And so we're presenting our ideas. And we want to do this. We want to do this for you after church and all this. And and she responds. She says, let me tell you about this kid, about this 10-year-old boy. And she begins to talk and describe. She says, He was living with his mom, single mom, trying to raise him, and he was taken away from her because she was basically running a drug house out of her home. And there were all these people that were coming in and out, and they were dangerous. And so he was removed from her care, and she went off to jail. And then the reason he got put in the group home was not because he was a behavioral problem. He's a sweet kid. He has no violence or issues or behavioral uh, history at all. But what happened is, when they, he had other family in the area, but when they asked all his family if they'd take him, they all said no, nobody wanted him. And then they went to a wider net and tried to find a foster care family. And because he's 10 years old and a little bit older, nobody wanted to take him on. And so this kid who did nothing wrong is sitting in this foster care. And she, she begins to get more and more worked up as she's talking about. She's like, and on Mother's Day, this kid is gonna be sitting there on Mother's Day wondering what he did to deserve being locked up alone. She said, somebody, she'd go visit this kid and tell him he deserves to have a mother. And by this point, she gets to the point, she literally just begins to cry. Like she starts like weeping uncontrollably, like she just breaks down and she can't even talk anymore. And so all of a sudden it gets really quiet at the table. My boys and I are all just like, like, whoa, are you kidding me? And so we backed off. And so on Mother's Day, instead of us all giving Carry a gift. I guess she gave my boys a gift of her example. She got in her van after her church and she drove 40 minutes away, and she spent hours with this kid in this foster care group home, reminding him that he was worth something and that he deserved to have a mom. You know what that's called? It's called empathy. There's this is an old term that we don't really use anymore. It's called carrying a burden. We talk about, Galatians 6 talks about carry each other's burdens, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. It's the question, when was the last time that the suffering of another human being just wrecked you, literally just made you put your life on hold, and you sat down and you just wept when you heard what had happened? When was the last time that God gave you a burden for another person or a group of people Burdens launch purpose. It's all Experiencing any kind of purpose in life always begins with carrying a burden. It's not having a pity party and feeling sorry for yourself, but when you begin to grieve for another person, like Nehemiah is doing here, empathy comes before action. A lot of times people will say things to me like, uh, man, I just I want to know what my purpose is. I want to know why I'm here on this planet. Why did God put me here? And what they're doing is they're thinking about themselves. They're thinking about my talents, my abilities, what I want to do, what I have to offer, my special life. And the question I always love to ask when people are asking, it, what's my purpose, what's my purpose is, well, who has God given you a burden for? Because burdens launch purpose. If you don't have a burden for anyone, if, if you haven't allowed God to, to give you a burden for anyone, you, you won't know how he wants to use you. Empathy always comes before action. But notice, Nehemiah doesn't get stuck there forever. He doesn't stay there. So he, he grieves, but then the very next thing he does is he immediately moves on to prayer. In fact, I would say he doesn't even know how to pray really until he grieves. And I think that's a thing. I think a lot of times we don't know how to pray until we've, we've allowed ourselves to carry a burden for someone else. And that kind of inaugurates the moment where we know how to pray. And so he begins to pray, and you're going to see this over and over again over the next few weeks as we look at the book of Nehemiah. A problem would arise, and immediately what Nehemiah would do is he would, he would go right to God. He would bring it right to God in prayer, and he would offload the burden of it to God. And so that's what he does. If, if you're in a time of change right now where you didn't give permission and you feel like your walls are being torn down and you're going, I don't even know how to pray, here you go. This is a great model for how to pray. It's an incredible prayer. Verse 5, Then I said... O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying day, night, and day for your people, Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I personally have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for in my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. O oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. This is verse 11. This is the way the end of the chapter 1 ends. Grant me success today. Make the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. So Nehemiah, as, he, as he's confronted with this thing, that what he does is he grieves first. Go ahead to that next slide. Um. He grieves first, and then he moves straight to prayer, brings us straight to God. And then there's a couple of things that he does within that prayer that I think are, are worth pointing out. The first thing he does right there in verse six is he confesses. He confesses his sin. Did you, did you pick up on that? He begins the prayer by saying, God, I just want to confess my family and I personally have sinned against you. In fact, not just that, he, he, he says on behalf of the whole nation of Israel, we have sinned. God, we've sinned. We're the ones who put ourselves in this position. We are the ones who have done this to ourselves. That's how he begins his prayer. Well, it's amazing, not only do we not know how to grieve in our culture, that's kind of a foreign concept, I would also say beginning any conversation or any prayer with confession is also foreign to us. I mean, how often do you hear somebody begin that conversation when things are changing and we don't agree and we're hurt and there's conflict? How many people go, I just want to begin this conversation by owning myself? I just want to be you know, there's some things I've done here to contribute to this. I just want to confess that and own that and say, man, I've, I've blown it. I've kind of, I've contributed. I've put myself in this position in a sense. I'm really sorry. It's amazing when you start a prayer like that, when you start a conversation like that, the way it opens up possibilities for redemption, possibilities for reconciliation, po- possibilities for, restoration and for healing it's amazing what happens when we do that but we just don't but notice again nothing has happened yet in chapter one. we're not even to any action at all yet in the story but he but he begins with himself he doesn't begin by writing the angry email and going on facebook and you know here i'm going to tell you what's wrong with them in some really weird vague post no he, he says let me let me just i want to start here i've done some things I want to own that. That's what he does. He grieves, he prays, and at the beginning of that prayer, he brings it right before God. He owns himself and confesses what he did. And then finally, in the last verse of chapter 1, at the very, very end, finally, he asks God to intervene. He doesn't even get to any kind of request from God until verse 11 there at the very end. And he says, please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. So what we know is that in chapter two, what Nehemiah is going to do, finally, we're going to get to some action. What he's going to do is he is going to go before the king. He's cupbearer to the king. He's in this position. He's going to go stand in the gap and advocate before the king for his people. And he's going to advocate for a wall to be built in Jerusalem for his people. He's going to put himself at risk and go and do this, much like Esther did before the king. And he's going to to ask for the king's favor to do this. And so finally, at the very end, he says, God, grant me favor and success as I go and take action. What's powerful about that is that he does this last. After he grieves, and then grieving tells him how to pray. Then he prays. After he confesses, man, there's some things I've done here first. Finally, it's not till the very end. Then he finally gets to a point where he asks God to help him. See, what's so powerful about that is that oftentimes when we find ourselves in a situation where our walls have been torn down and some change has happened without our permission and we're not happy about it, what we do is we skip right to number four. And we go, okay, here's my action plan. And we begin to pray and say, God, if we pray at all, it's like, God, help me do this. I'm gonna do this and then I'm gonna do this. And I want you to bless me. I want you to give me favor. I want, and then I'm gonna do this and then I'm gonna talk to them and i tell them that. And then we ask God to bless. And then we wonder why God doesn't bless our efforts, and we get mad. I'm mad at God because he's not doing what I asked him to do. You didn't even take time to seek him, to properly grieve this, to own yourself, to seek the Lord for what he would want. It's not until after he's done all all those things that Nehemiah even knows what action to take. And it's not until the very end that he finally asks God to help him. See, we cheat the process, don't we? And whenever we cheat the process, really all we're doing is we're cheating ourselves. We're cheating ourselves out of God blessing us and giving us purpose and and showing us how to move forward. Oftentimes, it's times in our lives where we experience the most change and the most disappointment and where our walls are being torn down. Those are the times where we, if, if we allow ourselves to go through this and have a godly response, not just a reaction, but a response, those are the moments where God grants us purpose in our lives. Those are the moments where God shapes us and molds us into his character, into who he wants for us. These are the moments in our lives where that happens. And so this is what Nehemiah does. And and, and all that happens here in chapter one actually serves to launch all the action that we're gonna begin to experience in chapter two. So what's your response gonna be? If you're in a time of change right now, walls are being torn down, you didn't give permission, you weren't okay with this, but here you are. What are you going to do? As I read through chapter 1 again, the thing that really jumped out at me as I began to read it is is I I began to just realize, man, Israel was lucky that they had a Nehemiah in in this generation, in this period of time. You realize this is a really pivotal moment in the story of Israel. This This is a moment where things could go downhill real fast for Israel. And Israel was lucky they had a Nehemiah. They were lucky they had one who wept over them, who wept over the city. They were lucky they had one who went before the king and advocated on their behalf. They were lucky they had one who was willing to leave his comfortable palace in the citadel of Susa, in the top highest point in the entire empire, and go and actually be with them in the city of Jerusalem where things were so broken. They were lucky They had one like him. But so are you. And that's the bigger point of Nehemiah. You have one. If you're in a time of change without your permission, you have one who's doing the same things for you. Centuries later, Jesus came, and it says that he left a heavenly palace, and he came to earth to be with people, humanity, humanity. And he wept, just like Nehemiah wept, he wept over the city of Jerusalem. In Luke 19 and Matthew 23, both it says he broke down and he wept over the spiritual state of Jerusalem. The The Jewish leaders didn't recognize the Messiah. They were completely lost and they couldn't see it. And then he went before the Father on our behalf and didn't just risk his life, but he offered his life. He gave his life on our behalf, on the cross, sacrificially, paid the price for our sins so that we could have eternal life. 2 Corinthians says that he became sin for us on our behalf so that in him we could trade places and we could become the righteousness of God. That's the power of this moment. That's, that's the greater reality is that everything in the story of Nehemiah actually points toward the bigger reality of the gospel. That maybe you read it you go, well, they were trying to rebuild a temple in this city. Like, why aren't we trying to rebuild a temple today? Sometimes people ask that question. The reason we're not trying to rebuild a temple today still like they were is because Jesus came and he said, one who is greater than the temple is now here. So see, the, the greater reality is that the temple the city of Jerusalem, even the the nation of Israel, it all pointed toward the bigger reality of the gospel, that Jesus came. And when Jesus came, we didn't get a wall to keep us safe. We didn't get a security plan. We didn't get, you know, a city or a temple. We got a savior. And and so the the bigger reality is that whatever you're experiencing, whatever it is that you're going through, whatever walls have been torn down in your life, you have one who doesn't change and whose eternal reality promises you something far greater than whatever it is you're experiencing right now. And he wants to grant you purpose and use you powerfully in the times of your lives where you experience this. See, the reason... The story of Nehemiah is in the Bible. The reason it resonates with us still today, the reason we still read it today is because we recognize it. It's us. We were the ones who were broken down. We were the ones who, in our sin and in our shame, had completely destroyed ourselves. And we were the ones in our own effort trying to rebuild a wall, trying to rebuild ourselves and rebuild our lives. And it was Jesus who came on our behalf. And advocated for our lives. And so this morning, we wanted to end chapter one of Nehemiah by taking communion together. Because communion is a time where we're supposed to remind ourselves of that reality, of that truth. And so um, in a moment, the band is going to come. And uh, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he gathered around a table with his disciples. And even Judas was there, the one who would betray him. It says that in this moment, Jesus took the cup, which was filled with wine, and he says, he said, this is my blood shed for you. It's a representation of the new covenant in my name. Not the old covenant with the law and the temple. The new covenant of eternal reality of my sacrifice on the cross. And they took the bread and he broke it and he said, this bread represents my body, which was broken for you on your behalf. It represents your life, for my life, or my life for your life, that you will have life in my body being broken. And so for centuries, Christians have gathered around the table because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, do this. There are times in life where we need to gather around the table and we need to remind ourselves that this isn't all there is. We need to remind ourselves that Babylon does not get the last word, Persia, Rome, do not get the last word. And even sin, even death, do not get the last word. Because we have one who came to rebuild and restore, and his name is Jesus. And so what I'd like to do in a moment, I'm going to offer a prayer. And then uh, we have four communion stations around the room. There are two right over here to my side, and there are two in the back. So uh, figure out which one is closest to you, where you are. And I'm going to offer a prayer, and then we're going to um, we're going to get up and move in the room, and I'd love for you to get up and grab the the vial of juice and um, the cracker, which represents the body and the blood of Jesus. And don't take it right away. Come back to your seat and hang on to it. And maybe just spend some time with God. If you're in a season of change right now, maybe just spend some time with God. Maybe it's confession. God, I need to own me. I need to own some things here. Before I ask you to do anything in my life, maybe you need to just spend some time grieving something and reminding yourself that there is one greater than the temple. There's one greater than all the hopes we place our our hopes in in this world. Maybe you need to just spend some time asking God for his guidance. And then uh, we're going to take the elements together as one body. And for some of you in this room, maybe today will be the first time that you take communion as a follower of Christ. The body and blood was shed for you. Maybe today is the first day you say, you know what, it's time for me to stop fighting. It's time for me to stop making excuses. I need to just go all in. I need to surrender my life to Jesus, confessing as Lord of my life. He's the one who saves. He's the one who's gonna lead me out of this time. I need to surrender your life to him as a follower of Christ. So Jesus, right now we just come before you. We just recognize that it's your body and through your broken body, your, your blood shed for us that we find our hope. We find our answers. Um, God, we can't rebuild our own walls. We can't even fix the basic things in our lives that have gone wrong. But in you, we know we have hope. We have forgiveness of sin. You became sin on our behalf so that in you, we could become the righteousness of God. And so God, we confess you, for some of us in this room, we confess you as Lord of our lives. We allow you access to our lives. We surrender to you and allow you to begin to lead us and form us and shape us through these experiences of life. For others of us in this room, God, we say yes to whatever burden you want to give us, that we've seen the gospel, we know it in our own lives, that God, would you give us eyes to see the gospel in others? What? Who do you want to give us a burden for that they would know you, that they would be redeemed? maybe you want to give purpose to some of us in this room, God, through uh, the burden that we would begin to carry for others. But God, would you speak to us how we need to be spoken to this morning, each one of us in our lives. And we thank you for the cross, and we thank you for forgiveness. It's in Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. And okay, you can go and please uh, get the elements right now and come back to your seat with them.